Dracula versus Zorro. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Ryan Daly. Taking you through a strange pulp and horror team up Dracula versus Zorro, number one and two from Topps Comics, cover dated October, November 1993, reprinted by Image Comics in 1998. And Ryan, we're going a little more afield than usual and leaving superheroes behind here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, they, these are both characters who have appeared in superhero comics and certainly a lot of superheroes have borrowed tropes from both of these characters, more so Zorro, but, uh, Dracula as well. Um, and yeah, it's also different because this isn't necessarily a team up. It's a versus. Do people count this as a sort of team up when it's a versus? I mean, I would. I mean, I, I think it's, it's still, I mean, if you go in the grand Marvel tradition, every team up started with a fight. So that's, there's no reason, <laughs> there's no reason to, uh, to not include a team. Just, I mean, I think if you're throwing two different franchise characters into the same adventure, whether they're on the same side or not, I think that counts as a team up for our purposes. It has to be or else there's no show. <laughs> so, uh, in each episode of FW team up, one panelist will pick one character to defend. So in this case, Ryan, and who's your guy? I am going to take Count Dracula. So I will take, surprise, Zorro. And as is customary, we'll preface with a reason or reasons why we like the character we've chosen. So, Ryan, why do you have a thing for Dracula? I have loved Dracula for about as long as I can remember. He goes back to some of my oldest movie-watching memories and actually some of my oldest reading memories, too. And... One of the reasons that I started reading comics uh, was that I loved stories, but I was a very slow reader in school. I didn't like reading. I didn't like books. It took me a long time to learn to love reading the, the way I do now. But one of the first books that I picked up unassigned for no particular reason, like it wasn't part of homework or anything, I just read it by myself for fun was just an 80-page sort of young reader version of Dracula. And I knew the story at that point because I had watched some of the movies um, on an early Halloween. I dressed as Dracula, and I remember like every year after trick-or-treating, I would go home. My brother and I would watch horror movies until I had to go to bed. Uh, and one of the ones that always stuck out with me was the 1979 Dracula movie starring Franklin Jella as Count Dracula, and Donald mm. Pleasance was in it too. Um, and that movie scared me, but it also captivated me because it made Dracula, I mean, as Frank Langella played him, he was like a handsome sex symbol. And that's part of what I really like about Dracula, this old world regality that he has. He's the prince of vampires. He's a nobleman. And sometimes vampire stories get away from that. And you can certainly do stories where vampires are feral, inhuman monsters. You know, like, I Am Legend and From Dusk Till Dawn, and I like those movies, but I think if you use vampires interchangeably with zombies, you lose the best part of what the vampire is. And that is this sort of sexual, seductive, and aristocratic aura. And nobody in literature epitomizes that more than Count Dracula. So, yeah, that's what I love about him. He is he is evil. He absolutely is. I, I, I don't like thinking about him as a tragic figure. He is definitely evil, but he is also sexy and powerful, too. So, back to you. What do you like about the fox, El Zorro? Uh, well, who doesn't love a good swashbuckler, right? And, I, and though, I guess the Three Musketeers and Cyrano de Bergerac have some hold over me. They are from French literature. Zorro that's you, is... That's how you... Sorry, I'm, that's how you pronounce Cyrano de Bergerac? Cyrano de Bergerac. Wow, okay. Sorry. Les Trois Mousquetaires and Cyrano de Bergerac. See? Some, uh, some French uh, lessons for you. But uh, <laughs> Zorro is such a pure concept. He's a masked Robin Hood who looks sharp as hell. Uh, he was the inspiration for Batman. And he leaves an iconic mark, that Z. Uh, or Z, I guess you'd say. For me, it was the uh, Tarzan Lone Ranger Zorro Adventure Hour from Filmation uh, that made me discover the character. And I even remember watching Zorro and Son. Uh, I don't know if anyone else remembers this. 
because uh, those were like a couple of years after that cartoon in 1983. It lasted like five episodes before it was canceled. But I remember it. You know, I have like these childhood memories because Zoro was such a, you know, an iconic look and uh, so fun. So Zoro for me is when I think about swashbucklers, I'll, I'll think of Zoro perhaps before I think of, you know, the ones from French literature. Uh, well, Dracula wasn't born in the comics, but uh, he's had more than his fair share of comic book appearances. So, Ryan, can you take us through his publication history in and out of funny books? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, the character Dracula debuted in the novel of the same name written by Bram Stoker and published in 1897. It was not the first vampire story, but it became the definitive one. It took concepts and characteristics and made them tropes that would be repeated often. However, the novel did not take the world by storm, and Bram Stoker actually died penniless. The book's oh. popularity didn't really take off until 1922, when it was unofficially adapted into the film Nosferatu by F.W. Murnau. And I've never looked this up, but I'm assuming that F.W. Murnau's full name is Firewater Murnau. I mean, that would just be appropriate for us. After the success of the film Nosferatu, the novel Dracula was then adapted into a stage play, and then in 1931, Hollywood released the first Dracula film starring Bela Lugosi. Since that time, rare have five years gone by without an appearance by Dracula in a film or a retelling of his classic story. As for the count in comics... To my knowledge, his first four-color appearance was in the story Dracula Lives in Suspense, issue 7, published by Atlas Comics, which was the precursor to Marvel, in 1950. In 1962, Dell Comics published a Dracula title that adapted Stoker's novel, and then in 1966 and 67, they published three more Dracula comics that cast him as a superhero in a purple and red costume. You've got to look for the art of those, or look for those covers. <laughs> crazy. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt, though, the best-known Dracula in comics is the Marvel Comics version of The Count that debuted in Tomb of Dracula number 1, drawn by Gene Colan and first written by Jerry Conway, even though Marv Wolfman would like write 90% of the 70-issue series. Uh, in the 1990s, Marvel's distinguished competition used the Prince of Vampires against the Dark Knight detective in the Elseworlds tale Batman and Dracula Red Rain. And in between then and since then, Basically, every major publisher, including Marvel, DC, Dell, Dark Horse, Image, IDW, Dynamite, Boom, Xenoscope, Malibu, Caliber, Titan, Wildstorm, Harvey, Heresy Studios, Spacecope Productions, Action Age Comics, and Eco Comics, all of them have told a Dracula story of some kind. Which wow. helps that the character is in the public domain, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what's your favorite Dracula movie while we're on the topic? Uh, it would go back to the, the Frank Langella one from 79. Although I do, even though it's kind of a hot mess in some places, I do have a love for the 1992 Francis Ford Coppola Bram Stoker's Dracula with uh, Anthony Hopkins, uh, Gary Oldman as Dracula. Not Keanu Reeves' Finest Hour. The visuals of that movie, it's such a weird-looking and distinct movie that I, I love that. And I, I saw that in Impressionable Age, too. But, um, yeah, if we're going, you know, pound for pound, the, the 1979 one, I like a little bit more. Awesome. I, I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> I should have said the, the last one, which was... Uh, what was the most recent one? Was it the one where they're trying to do the uh, part of the universal, yeah, like make trying, it part of the – They were trying yeah. to start it and it failed. But I just remember because the trailer, he basically – he turns into or summons an army of bats that then punch the Turkish army. Like he bat punches <laughs> the Turkish army. Oh. He's like uh, the original Omak. <laughs> yeah. What about Zorro's uh, life in comics? And here, again, I would not have an answer about the best Zorro in film, so don't ask me at the end. But uh, he was created in 1919 by pulp writer Johnston McCauley. Uh, his first story, The Curse of Capistrano, serialized in All Story Weekly. It was the story that became The Mark of Zorro. You know, the, the book was republished under that title. And, of course, was also the very first Zorro film in 1920 with Douglas Fairbanks in the role. Uh, a commercial success that would lead to many more. McCauley would meet the demand for more writing over 60 Zorro tales between 1922 and 1959, uh, the last published posthumously. Uh, McCulley died just as the Disney-produced Zorro TV series was becoming popular. And others would write Zorro stories after him, perhaps most recently Chilean novelist Isabel Allende. 
Uh, Zorro was featured in more than 40 films, several television shows, both live action and animated, as well as radio dramas, plays, video games, and of course, comics. Uh, it's Dell Comics, uh, good old Dell, uh, published intermittent Zorro comics through the 1950s in four color comics and under the character's own name. Some of them, uh, the most popular ones and most reprinted ones by Alex Toth. Uh, Gold Key took up the, the foil in the 60s, but only to reprint Dell material, and then 20 years of nothing until Marvel published a tie-in with the television series in 1990. Uh, and in 1993, Topps Comics published the Dracula vs. Zorro miniseries we're covering, uh, which led to 11 issues of monthly Zorro stories. Uh, there was even a spin-off character who got her own comic, Lady Rawhide, and she still sees some action today. Uh, and in 2008, Dynamite published a Zorro series by Matt Wagner, who started by adapting the Elende novel, and Zorro also appeared alongside other pulp heroes in Chris Robertson's Masks series, all at Dynamite. And just a couple of years ago, DC published a Zorro-Django team-up by Wagner and Quentin Tarantino, so uh, he's still around in comic book form. I've read the uh, the earlier Dynamite uh, Zorro books by Wagner, and the art on the first arc, at least, was by Francesco Francavia. Beautiful book. Uh, looks great. He's one of my favorite artists working right now, uh, and just a great story too. I really dug that. Like, if you want basically a good starting point, that it feels modern and contemporary, but it's essentially an origin. It's a year one. It's Zorro year one. Check out the book by Matt Wagner and Francesco Francavia. Really good story. And that's what the Isabella Lende novel yeah, is. Yeah, it's see, like yeah. Young Zorro. Yep. Yeah, uh, recommended. So, uh, well, let's get into these issues. We've got uh, the two issues to cover. We'll uh, do it fairly briskly. <laughs> we'll try. Here's our synopsis. Dracula vs. Zorro by writer Don McGregor, penciler Tom Yates, inker Red Magyar, letterer John Costanza, colorist Sam Parsons, as edited by Jim Salakrup and Dwight John Zimmerman. Zorro, the fox, is in Toledo, Spain with his mute manservant Bernardo, having a sword of almost mystical potential made by a master blacksmith and alchemist. It blazes with light. While there, he rewards his weapons maker by scaring off some armchair inquisitors who want to put the man-witch out of business. Dracula rises from his coffin, hidden in his castle, but his sleep was restless. The Napoleonic Wars have come to Transylvania, and every day while the vampire sleeps, the danger of discovery and destruction draws closer. He decides to relocate and climbs down the sheer wall of his castle. On the road below, his faithful human servant, Skorka, loads the Count's backup coffin onto a coach. The coffin is filled with rich, fertile soil from the homeland to keep Dracula strong during his travels. Dracula gets in the coffin, Skorka hammers the lid shut and watches over his master as the coach carries them far from the castle. Zorro, as Don Diego, is then off to Paris, on his way to California by ship, which deck he will share with the lovely Carmelita Rodriguez, lately orphaned and filled with nihilistic grief. He's immediately taken with her and promises to meet her on deck that night. Skorka also notices the beautiful Carmelita while overseeing the loading of Dracula's coffin onto the ship bound for Paris. Skorka stays in the cargo hold with the coffin all day until the sun sets and the moon rises. Dracula emerges, he is quickly surrounded by every rat in the ship's hold, but he sends them all scurrying away. Skorka tells his master that he found a suitable woman to quench the Count's thirst during his voyage. When Don Diego sees Carmelita in the company of the European aristocrat later, he bristles. He wonders if it's only jealousy stirring in him or something more. They spar with words, and Don Diego takes his leave when she asks him to. Yes, Carmelita does ask Don Diego to leave, for she is in the thrall of Dracula. And when she's alone with the Count on the deck of the ship, she does not resist him. She lets him move on her, and when he puts his mouth on the flesh of her neck, she feels pleasure as much as pain. Don Diego is soon in his guise as Zorro, climbing the sails with abandon. What he spies is terrifying. Dracula draws his head back, his fangs sharp and wet as Carmelita's blood coats his lips. Then he moves in again, biting the lovely woman and drinking the life from her veins. Zorro zips down the rope and knocks the Count off Carmelita, surprised to see Dracula transformed into a bat-like monster. Dracula vs. Zorro issue 2. Dracula knocks Zorro on the bowsprit and leaps upon him. His monstrous face dives straight for the man's throat. His razor-sharp fangs press against Zorro's throat, leaving two red scratches. Scratches, but no blood, because Dracula doesn't pierce Zorro's skin before the fox slips out of his grip 
having wriggled away from Dracula, Zoro manages to climb back up the bowsprit. Dracula returns to the entranced Carmelita while musing that Zoro may be the first man he has ever failed to kill when his teeth were so close. He takes Carmelita's hand and runs her fingers through her own blood, then makes her taste it. Zoro slashes at the monster's face with his sword. They tangle, going ever higher up the sails. Dracula in flight, out of reach. Zoro takes out his bullwhip and entangles him about the face, swinging off the undead prince's head as if it were a balustrade and controlling his fall onto a waiting sail, then hiding himself on the ship's hull when the crew comes to inspect the mysterious damage. Unseen by the crew, Dracula drops down to the deck, his wings disappearing and his bat monster face returning to its normal Hungarian visage. He gathers Carmelita in his arms and carries her down to the cargo hold. He tells Skorka about his encounter with Zorro, and that turning Zorro into a vampire would be a bad idea. Dangerous competition, after all. He lies down with Carmelita in his coffin, telling Skorka they will go to Notre Dame. Skorka grabs a trident and heads for the upper deck to finish Zorro. As Zorro comes out of his hiding place, he meets Dracula's talkative man, Skorka, who gives some clues to Dracula's true nature. Unfortunately for him, Zorro's specially tempered blade cuts his trident's shaft. Skorka retreats, and Zorro skulks back to his cabin so Bernardo can tend to his wounds. The next night, on the intuition that the vanished Carmelita might find her way to Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, since she's spoken of its holy artifact the day before. Zorro finds his way there. He searches for her, and does find Christ's crown of thorns in their reliquary. Though, who knows if it's real. In the basement, a casket. And out of that casket, Carmelita playing seductress and trying to lead Zorro into sin. Zorro resists Carmelita's seduction, which impresses Dracula yet again. However, the Count has no delusion about sparing Zorro's life. Skorka blocks the exit, and Dracula summons all of the rats of the catacombs, setting them upon Zorro. Zorro fights off the rats, but they soon overwhelm him and make his limbs heavy. Skorka cannot stand back and watch the rats devour Zorro, the man who taunted him with jokes, who broke his staff, whose carefree nature is an affront to Skorka's seriousness. Against Dracula's wishes, the gypsy draws his own sword and charges Zorro. Their duel is brief. The fox skewers Skorka, his blood attracting the rats to his corpse. Zorro takes this opportunity to take Carmelita in his arms and run. Dracula watches his most trusted servant die and screams that he will make Zorro pay. He will, indeed, turn Zorro into one of the undead. Upstairs, seeing the crown of thorns shadow can hurt Carmelita, Zorro grabs it and forcibly puts it on the attacking Dracula's head. Dracula falls to the floor as the power of the holy relic begins to kill him. Slowly but surely, from foot to head, his body turns to dust. As the last of Dracula's body crumbles, Zorro walks away with Carmelita, who is finally free of the vampire's hold. Sometime later, Napoleon Bonaparte strolls through Notre Dame Cathedral, kicking up the dust that once was Dracula. Napoleon stops, seeing the crown of thorns on the floor. He picks it up to place it back on the altar, but as he does so, a thorn cuts his hand. A single drop of blood falls to the ground, landing in the pile of ash. As Napoleon walks away, the dust begins to take the shape of the Lord of Vampires. Ta ta ta. Uh, so what did you think of the uh, of this uh, short miniseries? For being two issues, first, it reads very long. Uh, it's, it's a very wordy two issues. And this is a thing with Don McGregor, whose work I have loved in the past mostly um, – my familiarity with him is mostly on Black Panther stories. For he did a long run on Jungle Action that was the Panther's Rage story arc, and then that continued in, in Marvel Premiere or Marvel Fanfare. I don't remember which one. But And I love those Black Panther stories, but they were very, very wordy. He writes a lot um, to the point where it's like, dude, just write novels. Um, so it's very wordy. It takes a while to get through just these two issues, but it's a fun little adventure. It's certainly he, he packs some action into it, um, a lot of setup. The, uh, there were some pacing issues in the beginning because he basically spends one page with each character for the first half of uh, the first issue. And I kind of wish he would just give us like actual scenes to, to kind of move things along faster. Right. Uh, in terms of the art, and we can go into more detail on this, but I just I really like Tom Yates's art. I, I've liked it since I saw him on Saga of the Swamp Thing, 
And when I knew that we were going to eventually cover this, I actually met him at uh, Heroes Con in Charlotte back in June. And I got him to do a sketch, a headshot, really quick of Zorro uh, as, as a sort of uh, for, for the purposes of this team up. Might we put it on the Fire and Water? Uh... Absolutely, yeah. Okay, cool. You you, you send me that, uh, and we'll we'll put it next to the uh, the because the the art yeah the art is great. What that does giving each character a page, uh, you know, going back and forth between them at the beginning just as introduction. Yeah, not much happens as a result. It's mostly McGregor sort of expounding on each of the characters and who they might be for the uh, I don't know uninformed reader, and perhaps also tapping into that. I know it's his normal style, but perhaps tapping into the fact that the these characters were born out of prose rather than comics and, you know, playing on that, either the pulp or the gothic of each of the characters. But it gives uh, Yates the chance to actually, you know, give us pinups of the of both of these characters. Uh, And I'll certainly be putting some of those on at fireandwaterpodcast.com because it's got some great evocative visuals. I love the uh, Zorro, uh, you know, doing that flaming z in the air the three panel triptych yeah 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 in that triptych and uh you know you so and you've also got some pretty cool dracula art in there as well so uh, you know at least the art shines in those sequences you know when i said earlier that zorro uh, on the sails on the ropes with uh, abandon that's a great page as well yeah so the comic is obviously a bit decontracted at first mm mm-hmm. mhm let's say, but uh, eventually the action takes over and things move much more quickly. The action has to be, you know, of a swashbuckling type. And yet the art keeps it in a sort of gothic uh, with, uh, you know, a limited color palette and horror stuff in the backgrounds or foregrounds or whether that's rats or fog or Yates is perfect for both styles. Yeah. What did you think of the uh, magic sword? What was that about? Um, <laughs> I actually I I was fine with it as a as a sort of slight deviation because it kind of gave it gave Zoro the edge that he would sort of need. I mean, when you're putting it's one of those things where well you see them up again and when you see what Dracula can do, especially his power sets kind of in the second issue, it's like okay, how does he not just kill Zoro so effortlessly? How is this guy still alive? You need to give him a little bit of the edge. So Giving Zoro himself a slightly supernatural edge, at least for this story, I was okay with that. I mean, the same way that, you know, like when, when you do like the Batman and Dracula crossover, you might get a, a slightly, you know, more supernatural element to help mm-hmm. Batman. It's just, it's deviation for this story that wouldn't necessarily fit in the normal canon of Zoro adventures. So I also, I like the look of a flaming sword, just aesthetically, mm-hmm. so I was okay with that. Um, this doesn't need to be the standard operating thing for, for Zoro, but it didn't bother me in this story. What did you think? First reading it, I was I thought it would feature more prominently. Obviously, it was the supernatural aid to defeating a supernatural monster, but it doesn't feature that much. Yeah, it's, it's not what he uses, yeah. Yeah, it shouldn't be, because if... If his sword is basically, you know, the perfect stake or, a, you know, a magic weapon that he just so happens to have that can defeat and kill Dracula, then there's no real jeopardy. You know, he's too good a swordsman not to eventually hit Dracula. And yet he also uses the bullwhip, which is like a, one of my favorite scenes. You know, there's, there's some some crazy action in there. And in the end, they're using uh, much more of the vampire lore by using Christ's crown of thorns, which is pretty gutsy as far as actually uh, saying that, that the actual crown of thorns is at Notre Dame and that it can be used against, you know, it's uh, it's using Christian lore uh, in, in a comic book story, which I thought was you know, a fun bit, and uh, but also one that, that some might find objectionable. I mean, then again, I mean... With Dracula, I mean the the crucifix since since the novel for for a mm-hmm. hundred years, the sign of the cross has been a weapon used against Dracula. Um, and Zorro, these are both characters that have Christianity isn't necessarily stooped in Zorro's story, but within that culture. So I think for the audiences and and for the characters of their types, it's not atypical. It does seem like a fitting thing to use some element of Christian theology as a weapon against Dracula because it, it's always been part of his mythology. And uh, it could have been a piece of the true cross. It could, you know, there are various relics that are 
supposed to be or meant to have been in uh, Notre Dame. What about the Napoleon Bonaparte uh, cameo <laughs> at the end? That was that was the thing where I like looked at. It, I was like. Wait a minute, is that supposed to be actually him? Like, is it just somebody else, like, dressed in, like, a general's outfit? And I had to I actually, like, did a quick search of what he looked like. I was like, yeah, that's definitely supposed to be Napoleon. And Well, yeah, the hand in the shirt. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. And and I actually, I had to do a little bit more research into just, I didn't know a whole lot about the Napoleonic Wars. Because the whole first section with Dracula, he's talking about the hunters and the invasion and why he has to leave his homeland in the first place. I'm like... All right, what is and I, so I had to do a little bit of search. Okay, where is the war being taken place? Like, what year is this set? And I had to kind of like match it up. And okay, this is what's going on. It's it's basically the the invasion is kind of heading into the Eastern Europe and the Transylvania, Hungary land. So it's a cute little cameo. I mean, does that mean it's does Dracula now have the blood of Napoleon <laughs> coursing through his veins or whatever by the by the end of it? Is that the blood that resurrects him? Does that? Is there any connotation that it gives him more or less power when he comes back? I don't know. What did you What did you think about Napoleon's inclusion? I, I like the research you've uncovered because I you almost forget that it bookends the story because it's the reason why Dracula leaves and Napoleon shows up at, at the end and resurrects him. And I well, you know, it's it's a kind of metaphor because uh, Napoleon sort of waged war through Europe. And Dracula is also, a, you know, in the same way, a symbol of bloodshed and uh, strife. And both are, you know, you know, imperial kind of characters. So it makes sense that, you know, he was resurrected not just by any drop of blood, which probably might have worked in this, uh, but that it is, you know, someone of his stature, someone that we might consider a true, a real life Dracula in in one sense. It also kind of goes to themes of the actual the novel Dracula, which is this old world European, old fashioned, superstitious world trying to intrude on what was conceived to be like sort of modern Europe, especially in Victorian London, as the as the novel is set in this case, Paris the clash of the old and the new. And Dracula, as much as says, he's basically he's going to Paris to, to Notre Dame to hide in plain sight or to, to hide right beneath Napoleon's nose, basically, just so that he'll never see him. Yeah, so there's an irony to it uh, where they're, they're supposed to be enemies but uh, wind up helping each other in, in a sense. Because it's also like as if Napoleon is consecrated by by Dracula's presence, mm -hmm. it makes him more epic for having resurrected the Prince of the Undead. We spend a lot of time at the beginning I get, when she's introduced with Carmelita and right. her, this issue with her family and her fear of her own blood, of possibly being sick. And then once Dracula basically bites her, she's basically, as a character, she's taken off the table and she's just a plot device. And we don't really get a scene with her and Zorro afterwards. Uh, of her recovering or coming back or anything like that. What did you think of her? Was she? Did we spend too much time with her or not enough? Well, you, that could be taken either way. I did like that this was a uh, like a death obsessed character at first. Mm -hmm. So that sets her up as a bride of Dracula, like the perfect bride, mm -hmm. because she's already obsessed with death. She's already feels like she's dead inside. Uh, her father has died and she's, uh, you know, she's mulling this over and she feels she's not good company. Uh, whereas Zorro is more of a he represents life in the story. He's, uh, you know, he's that kind of character who just lives life to the fullest and he's taken with her. But I think there's a, you know, polar opposites kind of thing going on. Uh, where she's a bit of a doomsayer and he's attracted to that because he might fill her life with light. And so maybe, you know, maybe he just wants to knock boots. It's, I mean, it's, it is Zorro. He is a, yeah. like Dracula, he's a charming character. You know, he's, he's built of charm. It's just not the same kind of charm. So she winds up in Dracula's arms, which makes perfect sense. He's a better boyfriend for her. By the end, once she's a pawn, I disagree that she's off the table because he, she's the one that he's going to rescue, so she's needed. Of course, yes, that's a plot element. But it's like she's becoming more herself from being obsessed with death and feeling hollow inside to that actual hollowness and being a bride of Dracula makes her almost undead. I mean, she's cured of it by the end, but uh, we get a sense that she is a sort of vampire character until she's cured of it. Yeah, I might have liked to see a bit more resolution uh, of that 
arc so that she's gone through death and coming out the other side, what that means uh, for her. I I can't remember if she was actually a, a part of the um, – damn, I should have checked. I've, I know I've got some old Topps Comics Zoros in a box somewhere and I just didn't take them out for this. But um, I wonder if Carmelita is part of that series as well because she's going to California as well, just like Zoro. I guess I think – I would have preferred that she get an epilogue rather than mm-hmm. the the funny little Napoleon cameo that sets up Dracula's resurrection. I understand why we get Dracula coming back because he never dies, but at the same time, like I think we could have left it with the assumption that this version of Dracula is dead, and I would have rather gotten a page or two with her catharsis coming out the other side of this. Yeah, because instead we get Zorro reusing the words that they had in the, uh, you know, in the early parts. Uh, no one can save anyone. Uh, you know, he actually saves her and he proves her wrong. But mm-hmm. we don't get her realization of this fact. What about Skorka? I was actually, when we come to the later section of who fared better, I was actually going to mention Skorka is my favorite character in this book. Really? In these two issues. I like this character. It's just, there's like, first of all, and I mentioned when how uh, the character of Dracula is in the public domain. The thing is, every comic, every interpretation kind of does their own like re- reinterpretation of what he looks like visually, because the classic look of Bela Lugosi as the stately vampire, that look is actually owned by Universal. They have a copyright on that look of Dracula. So everybody else has to kind of do their own version of what he looks like. So this one, we get a very more sort of Eastern European, Hungarian, long mustache, long hair type of Dracula. But the first time we see Skorka on that panel, I think he's drawn to look like Boris Karloff, who played Frankenstein's monster. I I think there's definitely an homage there. But I like his faithfulness to Dracula that is not based on Dracula's power or his blood or his mesmerism. It's an old family thing where like, for generations he has been a servant and he is so loyal, but to the point where he's stooped in this old type of tradition that he he's he's a proud character and that pride is ultimately what gets him killed because when he is offended and when he thinks his master is offended that's what leads him to challenge Zoro one on one and he gets killed for it so yeah I, I just I, I thought Skorka was a, a fun interesting character to follow in this and sort of necessary but not just because Dracula needs someone to cart him around but. Mm-hmm. Uh, also as a secondary foe for Zoro, who is much more human, and so Zoro can have that fight that makes more sense than trying to go after Dracula, who is super powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you kind of need the Skorka uh, in there to uh, add extra scenes yeah. where where Zoro isn't you know, getting pwned. And then he meets his end with uh, just, uh, he gets eaten by rats. Yeah, and Dracula probably could have stopped that, but he chose not to because he he walked into that. I mean, he was already stabbed through the stuff. He was probably bleeding to death anyway, but... Yeah, yeah. That's probably his real death, but just, like, as you're dying from a gut wound, let's have you eaten by rats. So there's a very strong horror element, uh, which might uh, take us into our little mini-debate, the who fared better. Who fared better always starts with, whose story is this really? Uh, does this fit better as a Zorro story, or is the atmosphere completely Dracula's? So I, I know you're going to take uh, Dracula's part, but um, <laughs> you go ahead. Well, so that's the thing. I think it is more of a Dracula story, a Dracula setting, and Dracula themes. But I kind of want to say I think Zorro fares better for the, I mean, for the simple reason this isn't a team up. This is a versus. So one of them wins, uh, mm-hmm. and Zorro wins. And the fact is. Dracula outpowers him. He's stronger. He's faster. He can fly. He can turn into a monster. Dracula should have been able to kill him multiple times, and he failed to do so. And Zoro ends up killing him. So it's it, it's kind of hard to say that Zoro didn't fare better when he actually wins the fight. But I do think this story felt more like a horror story than a swashbuckling adventure. What did you think? Yeah, I was going to say, in, in any case, many Dracula stories end with uh, the Count being defeated, right? True, yeah, yeah. Temporarily or, or not. So a, a Dracula story usually has this sort of ending because 
uh, we can't suffer the monster to live or unlive or whatever. However, <laughs> I, I don't know about, you know, undead grammar. But so it's got, Zorro, yeah, it's Zoro being confronted with the supernatural. And in his stories, normally, that's not normally the case. When he's confronted with this other world, and in fact, we're in Europe instead of California, we're in Dracula's setting. So I think he, I would agree that this is more of a Dracula story. And yet it's also since Zorro is the protagonist, is the hero, even though they go back and forth and give each character his own narration and his own color uh, caption boxes. It feels like a chapter of the Dracula story, and yet the hero is Zorro. Maybe it's uh, it's one of those stories that are, are well-balanced, where you can't exactly say whose story it is because it is a perfect team-up or versus. Let's talk about cool moves. Who had the best moves? I did like Dracula summoning an army of rats. That was pretty cool at the end. It's it's a, an unorthodox, atypical power that you don't necessarily assume Dracula would have, especially when you think of him you know, changing his physical form into a bat or a wolf. He's got mesmerism powers. He can fly. He can change his face to look more monstrous. But my favorite part of this was when they're in the catacombs beneath Notre Dame, when he is kind of just clinging to the wall, on the side of the wall, uh, with his like cape, you know, hanging down by gravity and everything, and he just sicks these rats on him. I thought that was pretty cool. And it leads to some pretty great uh, Zorro art, where uh, he's fighting the, those rats on uh, in the back of the second issue. Well, the coolest move for Zorro, I think, comes in the first issue. Or actually, no, the beginning of the second issue, because, yeah, you're right, yeah. It, it takes so long before they get together. So the, the beginning of the second issue, where they're fighting in the, in the sails of the ship, all the bullwhip stuff. He swings his bullwhip at... Dracula and wraps the the whip around the Dracula's throat and face like hides his eyes so he, he blinds Dracula and then he drags him down by basically using him as a chandelier mm-hmm. uh, just swinging off a guy you know and then controlling his fall and all that so that even when the bullwhip releases uh, he's in a better position than Dracula was so that's his way to defeat a flying opponent yeah that was a really cool moment yeah Dracula has to be really tough too to take that that sort of punishment uh, but that felt to me like a very swashbucklery thing to do and almost absurd in its hyperaction of course that's my favorite bit yeah, I like that too. It's a it's a fun little action beat. Um, it looks good in the setting of them like above a sail ship with all the like the sails and the the wooden planks and everything like that. Of just having him swing like that is a really cool move. Do you think it's cooler than summoning rats? Um, for the purposes of an action story with these two people fighting, yes, I think it, it's <laughs> it, because he's not relying on a second hand or the use of animals to charge him to actually with the the whip and everything attack i think that is a cooler move yeah zoro gets the notch on that one i'm just trying to make sure i score points here <laughs> uh what about dumb or or weird moves uh what is uh, dracula's dumbest or lamest move I, I think it's the fact that he actually gets his teeth on zoro's neck and fails to go all the way he, he, he like leaves these tiny little red like welts but doesn't actually break the skin and get the and draw the blood, which would basically end it all. Yeah. The fact that he gets that close and Zoro just kind of it's it's a little bit tough to follow the art, but I guess Zoro just kind of like rolls out of it and goes over the side of the ship. But uh, yeah, dude, you got to close the deal. Yeah, that's the bit where the art doesn't quite sell it. Why doesn't this connect? Why some sort of iron neck technique? Mm-hmm. Uh, because. It really, Dracula should be uh, sinking his teeth in there like it were melted butter. For Zorro, for me, the lamest bit is the magic sword, as why I put a question mark on it earlier. Because you go through all this stuff where he goes to another country, and I mean, travel times, and uh, you know, back in the, the 1800s were pretty long. So we've got Zorro out of his own hometown where we know there's strife, we know there's injustice, and he leaves for months. To go get a sword made and that sword is magical or alchemical or whatever it is and it blazes, it flames and then later on it loses those properties. I guess it's just because it was brand new but it doesn't really do much. It's just a little kicker but it's not uh, – and it, you know you can cut the shaft of a, a spear in half which a foil probably wouldn't be able to do. But what's the point of that if it's not going to be more uh, – used more against Dracula? So the magic sword to me was that, huh? More, more of a weird, weird move than uh, from the writer, uh, but also a strange move for Zoro to leave town forever. You know, for those 
periods of time just so he can get involved in the story. So the basic premise of the tale uh, is suspect to me. Yeah, and I agree with that. It is set up like it's a weird sort of Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's flaming sword because it's introduced, okay, this should be a really big deal, but it ultimately doesn't turn out to be it, – it's not a MacGuffin, nor is it like the, the silver bullet to, to mix mythological creature metaphors here or anything like that. So it's it's a weird one. Especially since we spend so much time on it. And I, I would have – again, going back to what I said earlier, I would have been fine with it if it was – a bigger deal if that magic sword actually had some powers to hurt and to really do damage to Dracula, but we don't see that ever. And that leaves us the friendly farewell, the team up tradition. But in a versus, uh, it's not going to be uh, so friendly. Uh, but there is, I guess, a farewell. There is a uh, Zoro over Dracula's body as he melts. Uh, what did you think of this um, this farewell? Who who comes across better? Because these again, they're sparring words. I think I think that the word fight. That they have on the ship when they're just, you know, fighting over Carmelita and, and here, the conversations. We didn't mention them much, but those are some pretty good moments for both of them where they're just being witty against one another. Yeah. And as Dracula is sort of melting from the foot up from the crown of thorns, uh, he does basically get a chance to do a villain monologue in death. And he's basically, <laughs> basically saying, you have no right to judge me and, and kind of basically defending himself as this, evil predatory creature and uh it's an okay farewell i i I can it's probably too wordy because we get essentially five panels on the top of the penultimate page and uh, about 10 11 word balloons from dracula across these panels of just monologuing talking about this as his body is slowly dying and this is something where i would have told the writer just okay speed it up a little bit you know kind of get to the point but uh it's a good death. I mean, he gets to do his shtick as he's dying away because he is like he's a, a noble aristocrat, so he's going to talk, and Zoro just watches him die. Do you think he wins the? He sort of wins that game with uh, with Zoro because uh, he does get to sort of die without any remorse and uh, you know still expounding on his evil and his vision, uh, even though uh, you know maybe Zoro has the moral high ground, but to Dracula morality is yeah and i mean he, his final words are like i embrace this or i embrace death so when you can meet death with that type of certainty um it certainly gives you uh, you know a sense of victory at the same time he is dying so does that i guess from uh, the perspective of the survivor nothing he says should really matter that much but then also in the next page he comes back to life again so it's this is a tough one to judge. I, I'm i inclined to give the notch to Zoro just because he's the survivor. He is, I guess, the protagonist because he's the hero, at least. He's the righteous one. And he gets the girl. He does. If this was just a, uh, you know, a competition, <laughs> a competition for a woman, Zoro ends up winning, even though Dracula had the upper hand all along. Yeah, I kind of, <laughs> the sort of fatalistic I come down on Dracula's, you know, he can talk all he wants, but if he's so smart, why is he dead? <laughs> That's one way to put it. All right, we'll take a, a break for a couple of promos, and then we'll be back to uh, wrap things up. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics. To save the innocence of Transylvania from ignoble nobles, he comes, foppish count by day, dark dispenser of justice by night, bleeding the rich dry to feed the poor, leaving his mark on all who oppose him, that mark a giant bleeding hole. Zorro the Impaler, a number one issue coming your way when the sun sets. The Supermates couldn't stop it. It's amazing. It's incredible. The Fire and Water Network couldn't contain it. We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. The House of Frankenstein returns in 4D. They meet at the castle and hold debauched gatherings. Four blood-curdling episodes. Four classic horror films. Four supernatural adventures with your favorite superheroes. Four chances to lose your mind with sheer terror. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. When the full moon rises... I turn into a werewolf with only one desire in my mind, to kill. John Carradine. I am Count Dracula, but 
But I'm known to the outside world as Baron Latos. You see before you a man who has lived for centuries, kept alive by the blood of innocent people. Julia Adams. Please, what is it you found? I don't know what you call it. It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. Peter Cushing. This place has been accursed to the evil of some who abide here. And at long last, Vincent Price. Nine killed you. Nine shall die and be returned your loss. Coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I can't wait. There isn't time. There isn't time. House of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. 4D. My work is nearly finished. Go now. Destroy all I have created. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ, as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. We're back, and our final feature every time is the bonus team-ups, in which each of us proposes perfect team-ups for the characters we've seen. And usually we only do like the one character, whoever's teaming up with Superman, Batman, or Spider-Man. But in this case, both characters are unusual and and don't see so much play in team-ups. So, what Zoro and Dracula team-ups might we... Uh, suggest. So, Ryan, how about a Dracula team-up? Uh, this is one that I have got to credit to both Rob Kelly and Nathaniel Wayne individually and distinctly uh, for, for coming up with this idea separately, because Dracula has had so many team-ups and so many versus encounters with different people across the different literary franchises. But the one, the one idea I would really like to see now is Dracula versus Indiana Jones. Nathaniel Wayne told me about that idea for a movie that I thought would be great, um, but it's also very close to the idea that Rob Kelly had for his Ace Kilroy comic series. So I, I would love something like that. Just start off with an Indiana Jones adventure where he's, you know, searching through, stumbles across his coffin, opens it up, and it's Dracula. And I think that would be a, a fun pulp adventure. Plus, we would probably get another scene of somebody using a bullwhip on Dracula's face, which, as we said, <laughs> was the highlight of this story. So why not see it again? Yeah, let's see it in uh, live action. And after reading this, I went to see Atomic Blonde, which has similar bullwhip action. So as a bullwhip fan, I guess, <laughs> I was pretty happy. It's a fun one because unlike Zorro, the supernatural is much more a part of Indiana Jones's DNA. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Dracula would fit that universe. For me, I'd say, uh, well, you know, probably because I was going to team up with you, Ryan, my mind went to... Midnight, the podcasting hour. And so I would team up Dracula with Night Force or versus them uh, because, uh, you know, Baron Winters sets his sights on the count. Taking the role of uh, the Van Helsings basically would be the Night Force. Not all of them survive. And uh, I think it's a, also it's probably I'm thinking this because Wolfman and Gene Colan mm-hmm. uh, worked on Tomb of Dracula and Night Force. So those two tastes. Uh, coming together for the first time. I would have loved to have seen that back when Gene Colan was still alive, but yes, that would have been great. Yeah, it's kind of difficult today. Yeah. Uh, Zorro team-ups now. For me, I would put Zorro uh, with the whip. Again, uh, you know, Ryan Daly is on the show, so uh, I immediately went to the whip. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, and maybe this would be some kind of origin story. Obviously, the whip was uh, based on 
mm. uh, Zoro. It's there, there's no there's no mystery there. He's basically uh, the Golden Age DC's version of Zoro. But maybe it's a kind of origin story the, where the whip continues in Zoro's tradition and is being trained by the fox, now much older, but perhaps he still got it because uh, you want to see them in action both together. And this is a story that's been told in the Zoro lore because there is. You know, the, the son of Zorro, or the most famous one being uh, Antonio Banderas, you know, becoming Zorro after after the older Zorro, you know, leaves the, the cape and foil behind. Yeah, that, that's that's how I would do it. I'd probably do a DC Comics thing where the Whip and Zorro are uh, teamed up at different ages. El Zorro and El Castigo. Uh, like, uh, this one was tough for me to think because I was trying to think of other classic pulp characters. And the thing is... With the, I think Dynamite has published almost all of them, like having Zorro team ups recently, like the Lone Ranger and Green Hornet or something mm-hmm. like that, and even Django. But I wanted something that had, you know, a, a kind of supernatural feel. Maybe it was just because after I had been reading this one, something, but also that sense of like riding, like I'm a horse on the highway or something like that. So I went with Zorro and Ghost Rider. Uh, I think would have been an interesting one. Now, it could be a modern contemporary ghost rider that goes back, so we get to see the motorcycle and the Zorro on horseback, or it could be an older version of ghost rider that existed in, you know, the 1800s or, the or, you know, turn of the century uh, with ghost rider on horseback. But one way or another, I think that would be an interesting. And you can have the whip and the flaming chains. Yeah, something like that I think would be interesting. They're both sort of branding their evildoers. Uh, I think Zoro and Ghost Rider would be a fun team up. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be cool, especially with the the legend of the Ghost Riders going back mm-hmm. a ways, and you could have like that flaming horse, or uh, well, it's it's uh, Ghost Rider, so you'd have like the flaming uh, stagecoach, and yes. <laughs> you could do all those things. Uh, that would be pretty cool. And you're right; there's something similar about them somehow, They're, you know, uh, visually that could be exploited there. I like it. So that's it, really. I uh, thank you for teaming up with me, Ryan. Remind people where they can find you on our network well, what shows well thank you for having me and thank you for starting this new show well it's not new because by now you've done like six episodes of them but this FW team up is a great idea I can't wait to hear more of these in the future I think it's going to be so much fun but yeah thank you for having me on this one uh, as for me and where people can find me I've got shows on this fire and water network uh, you can find me on Batman Nightcast Midnight the Podcasting Hour covering horror comics Give me those Star Wars from time to time, Power of Fishnets, which looks at Black Canary and Zatanna comics. Uh, I am also the writer of two different web comics available at Rising Sun Comics, My Pet Ninja and Red and Green. And so a reminder that we do enjoy reading your comments and that the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or tag us on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcasts. So see you next time for another amazing superhero team-up, because after all, justice is a team effort. 